title of my sermon this morning is Scared Money, Don't Make No Money. <laughs> Scared Money, Don't Make No Money. If I ever go broke, I'm going to take your money. Anybody? Nobody knows that song? Come on, William. We're going to continue in our study of Acts in chapter 19, verse 23. Acts 19, 23. If you don't have a Bible, the words are on the screen. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater kind of the main central place of the city, rushed into the theater together. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Y'all know when you've been in a situation like that, you're like, why am I even here? The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions at him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd. That's basically the town mayor, okay? So the mayor quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city, of Artem- uh, sorry, the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. I'm sorry, I just want to make sure we're on the right slide. Uh, Nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, in other words, judges. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to give an account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. We'll pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And um, there's an infamous story in my family 
of the Muffin Man. You guys know the Muffin Man? You know, when I was in high school, so who's the Muffin Man? That's the question here. When I was in high school, I used to cut one-sixth of my body weight to compete in a certain weight class in wrestling. That means I, I weighed 150 pounds and I cut down to 125 pounds every week. And so a consequence of this was I was incredibly protective and obsessive over food. And uh, I, I would gorge myself after wrestling matches and then I would eat like a bird or not eat at all for a week afterward. This is really unhealthy, by the way. And, um, and so one of my, my favorite treats in this time was these big blueberry muffins that you get at Kroger. And uh, my mom had bought a four pack. And, uh, I, you know, as the story goes, my brother and I had each eaten one of the, the four muffins and then someone else had had one. So there's one muffin left. And I came into the kitchen and supposedly I caught Will about to eat the last muffin. Supposedly. <laughs> and I said, Will, didn't you already have one? There's only four. And he says, oh, yeah, I did. You're right. I'll leave it. And he leaves it. And now later that day or the next day or maybe a couple days later, I come into the kitchen and the last muffin is there. And I'm like. And so I go and I go to start eating it and Will walks in and he catches me this time and he's mad. He's livid. He's like, what? Didn't you already have a muffin too? And I'm like, yes. And so he's livid, rightfully so, right? I was a hypocrite. My mom walks in and then my, my, my pops and my sister Chloe come in there's, and there's a commotion, right? And everyone's in confusion. What is even happening? And I, yeah, why are we here? Because I was trying to eat the last blueberry muffin. And that blueberry muffin became infamous. Who ate it? Well, I don't think I ended up eating it. Right? I did? Dang, that's tough. Also, I was probably like, you know, scarfing it down as he's like yelling at me or something, you know. Uh, my mom, too. And you see, I had a scarcity mindset. I had become conditioned to thinking obsessively about my food and protecting what I wanted, even at the expense of someone else. Because I was denying myself the food that I wanted and needed so often, and that's, in that moment, if the story is, is true, I totally disregarded my brother and thought only of myself. And the title again is, Scared Money Don't Make No Money. When you're fighting to protect yourself, when you're scared of losing what you have, it doesn't usually end up well for you. And the context of our text this morning, kind of right before what we read happened, the Apostle Paul had been teaching and preaching about Jesus in the city of Ephesus for a long time now, probably a couple years. And he had helped many people. He healed many people. He even gotten some people who had been practicing sorcery to come to know Jesus. And so they literally, they had all these books of sorcery. They had all their spells and all their whatever else in them. And they had all these books. And they were worth $100,000 in today's dollars, not accounting for 1,950 years of inflation. Okay, so think $100,000 times a whole lot. They have a small fortune of these books of sorcery. But they come to know Jesus. And from the teaching of Paul, they say, you know what? We should get rid of these. And so they just burn them. 
They'll even sell them, right, to other people to practice sorcery. They just burn them publicly, right? So there's, this, there's a lot happening in Ephesus of people coming to know Jesus, coming to know the way of the Lord. And so the backdrop of our text today, the kingdom of God is moving powerfully in the city of Ephesus, right there in Asia Minor. And all this is happening, and many people are turning from their old ways to follow the way of Jesus. And then there's this man, Demetrius, that comes on the scene. And he's a man who has been fairly successful in his field. He's a silversmith who specializes in, in making little mini statues of the goddess Artemis and her temple. And these statues were used for people to honor and worship the goddess Artemis wherever they were. And so he sees the cultural landscape of Ephesus begin to shift. More and more people are changing from their old ways to follow the way of Jesus. And he's afraid. He starts looking as a good businessman to protect his interests. And he's afraid of losing what he has and what he's worked so hard to build for himself. Yo, what's up, Mike? I didn't even see you here today either. (laughs) Welcome to town. And so Demetrius, right, he calls together the other craftsmen, the other tradesmen, and he tells them, we are in danger. We are in danger of losing our good name and losing some of our business. Oh, and by the way, our goddess Artemis might be discredited. Demetrius goes on to say that Artemis is being robbed of her divinity. And we must bring an end to this. And so we start to protest. And that protest becomes borderline violent. And as they try and seize some of the Christians and bring them into the riot, the Christian leaders, you know, they start getting scared. Their people are being seized. And then the whole crowd starts shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And at this point, the equivalent of the city mayor comes in and he tries to disperse the riot, right? And the Christians, he's saying, hey, they haven't, they haven't robbed any temples. What have they done? Why are you grabbing them? They haven't done anything wrong. In fact, he says, the real danger lies with you, with your fear, with you starting a riot. And in the middle of this text, we have this phrase that says, the whole assembly was in confusion. The very middle of this passage, the assembly was in confusion. And so the story goes, danger, you know, Demetrius says, danger to our good name and business. Artemis is being robbed. He gets the crowds to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then right in the middle, says the assembly was in confusion. Again, they shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then the, the, uh, the, the mayor guy says, hey, the temples aren't being robbed. And then he ends with, the danger is not with these Christians. It's with this rioting. It's with your behavior. And so what's so interesting is that the very middle of this passage is about an assembly in confusion. And the word used here for assembly is that, that Greek term we mentioned a few weeks back, ecclesia. And it's the word that means Church. And Luke, who writes Acts, uses that word, ecclesia, to describe the church over and over again throughout the book of Acts. But here he uses it kind of in a different manner. And so in this great crowd that's in confusion, you have the Jewish people. You have the Christians, both those who are kind of following their homies who are getting seized, and then the guys who are getting seized, right? And then you have all the the tradesmen and craftsmen who are chanting. And so the whole, you have this, this group of people from diverse 
religious backgrounds and worldviews, and they're all in confusion of what is happening. It says the assembly is in confusion. And that word ecclesia, if you guys remember, means called out once. And so we have a bunch of people called out into the theater and wondering what is going on. In our text today, the called out ones are in confusion. And I think we can relate maybe much more than we realize to this passage. Some of you guys are like, you know, where in the world is this going? How do we relate to a bunch of people shouting about Artemis, you know? Thank you, Bruce. Um, You know, I think we too are confused at times. I think we too are confused about what is really best for us. What's going on in our lives? I think we're confused about what our souls need and long for. As the story I told earlier, I longed for a blueberry muffin. (laughs) But if you couldn't tell, that muffin represented so much more. Right? The fight my brother and I got in when we were in high school, right? This isn't like we were nine. We were in high school. The fight we got in that I instigated was about much more than a blueberry muffin. It was about the things I longed for. My longing not to be hungry. My longing to be fulfilled. My longing to be satisfied my longing to be pleased, to not live in scarcity. And when we have these longings to protect what we have and protect the dreams of what we want to have, we begin to live our lives through a lens of scarcity. And the lens of scarcity says, I don't have enough. I need to protect what is mine. Then when we do have excess... We immediately, we immediately use it for whatever we think will provide for us and our gratification immediately. Whatever will give us comfort and ease. We protect our me time, our money, our dreams, and then our dreams even become self-centered. We end up acting just like Demetrius. And when the kingdom of God seems to be knocking at our doors and asking for more from us, asking us to give something up, we get angry. We push God away and we push others away. And then we get confused. And I know I relate to these things. I've had a pattern before where when I'm go, 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 and I'm wiped out, mentally and emotionally exhausted, I just want to sit on the couch and watch TV or something like that. Or play chess, I've talked about that before, right? Or play Catan. Now, the things I like to do, I just want to do what I want to do and chill and not have to be present emotionally. And in those moments, if Melina asked me to do anything, it seems like it's the hardest thing in the world. (laughs) It seems like it's so tough for me. It's in those moments where the last muffin, the last blueberry muffin becomes a big deal. Why? Because I feel like I'm empty. And I ask, what is it for you? What gives you a mindset of scarcity? Is it money and feeling like you never have enough of it to do what you want or to get what you want? Is it your schooling? Do you overinvest and overcommit yourself in your schoolwork and academic life because you think it's the one thing that you can control and excel at? And if you do, if you just work hard enough, you will be at peace, you'll be fulfilled. Or is it a guy or girl that you like? Do you find yourself constantly trying to manipulate your impression 
or their impression of you in their eyes? Do you think you can just get them, if you can just get them to think a certain way about you, to like you, to value you, then you'll be enough. Then you'll be accepted. Then you'll be loved and then you'll be valuable. Then you won't feel lonely anymore. It doesn't even have to be a romantic relationship. It could just be friendships. If you could get your friends to think a certain way about you, if you could get your friends to respond a certain way to you, well, then you'd be valuable. Then you'd be enough. What happens is we start seeing people through a lens of scarcity. And all this pressure is on us to make things happen for ourselves, to provide for ourselves. And when this is the case, it's no wonder why we are confused. It's no wonder why the people around us are confused too. And we start feeling robbed, just like Demetrius. When God seems to be requiring more from us or calling us to give something up or to let go of something, we feel as if our honor, our prestige, our very way of life, everything we're used to, the things that make us feel comfortable and safe, it feels like all of that is being threatened. We feel as if we are in danger. We feel as if we're being robbed and we don't know what to do. And in fact, we very well may be robbed. None of us like to admit it, but sometimes, subtly, God is trying to rob us. Some of you are like, huh, I don't know about that. So the thing about God's robbery is it's more like an invitation. He doesn't usually just take. He usually invites us to be taken from. He usually invites us to have the idols of our lives robbed from us. He invites us to a new way of being in the world where we aren't so concerned about ourselves. And when we aren't so concerned about ourselves, then we aren't so concerned about our time, our money, our relationships, what people think about us. And we stop trying to hoard things and manipulate people. And in fact, God is inviting us to a new way of life. He is inviting us out of a life of scarcity and into a life of abundance. And if you don't like the title, Scared Money Don't Make No Money, you could title the sermon, The God of Abundance, if you don't like rap music. You know, scared money don't make no money. And I'm not talking financially anymore. But God is inviting us to live a life of abundance where we're not in fear of protecting ourselves. But this begins with, with a relationship with God that overflows. And I think the best text, the best scripture in the Bible uh, of a place to start to see God as a God of abundance is Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, we see a God that makes our cups overflow. We see the kind of relationship that every single one of us longs for and needs. We see a relationship where we're absolutely secure where we lay down in green pastures beside still waters, where we have enough and we are at peace and we are protected. We feel secure, intimate, seen, heard, special, valuable. And we know that we will be taken care of. But all this starts with us spending time with the God who is a God of abundance, learning and experiencing who he is and that he does provide. And that takes time. That also takes being without and seeing God come through. 
or we never learn to experience who God actually is. But all of this might sound challenging. Does anybody feel like challenged by this? I know I do. To me, Cameron and, and Annabelle. I think this is indeed challenging. How do we become people of abundance rather than scarcity? How do we just start to trust God and view him differently? I have a few practices for us this week. I'll read them now. The first one is Psalm 23. Is take a moment this week to just dwell in Psalm 23. To just let that text flow over you like a waterfall. Just overwhelm you. Let it wash over you the picture that paints of God and who he is. And let this become who God is to you. Because it's who God actually is. The second practice this week is giving. Each week we have the opportunity to practice generosity and abundance rather than scarcity. Where we get to choose not to hoard our money or simply protect ourselves, but to practice giving to God as a regular rhythm in our lives. The third practice I have for us this week is fasting. And fasting is when you abstain from something for a set period of time. And the thing that fasting does for us, maybe to an unhealthy extent, if you're me in high school, fasting teaches us to practice patience, discipline, and self-control. Obviously, I was not self-controlled with the blueberry muffin. But when we choose to fast for specific periods of time from specific things for a specific purpose, we start to learn how to practice self-discipline. We learn how to practice how to be okay without. And then how to be gracious when, with what we do have. And so regular rhythms and fasting in our lives can form us into people of generosity and abundance as well. And the fourth practice I have for us this morning is renunciation. Renunciation, like the sorcerer's scrolls, sometimes there are things that God is actually just calling us to give up, to renounce. And these might be behaviors like drinking too much or sexual impurity, or they might be a relationship that's unhealthy for you spiritually or emotionally. It might be a possession of some sort, but sometimes God is inviting us to rob ourselves of our idols the things that we go to and depend on, but that don't actually fill us up, that don't actually overflow into our lives and make us people of abundance and generosity for others. And so God is inviting us to renounce these things. Now, some of you might be feeling inspired and convicted, but others of you, and I hope you are, but others of you might be feeling overwhelmed still or just confused. And you might be looking at these four things and being like, I can't do all of that this week. That's probably true. You probably only need to do one or two of these this week. This week. I don't think all four of these are for every single one of you this week. But probably one of them is. And if you're feeling confused or overwhelmed, the crowds here in Acts 19 were feeling confused too. And so were the crowds at the foot of the cross. When we talked about the cross a few weeks ago, at the foot of the cross, when Jesus was being crucified, there were people in the crowds who were feeling hopeless and disappointed. Others were feeling overwhelmed. Others were feeling puzzled. How could this be? And others were feeling angry and satisfied, shouting, crucify him. But when we are confused and helpless, when we have been living through a lens of scarcity, the God of abundance stood where we could not. 
The God of abundance became the good shepherd, the one who provides the sacrifice that we could not provide. The one who takes the death that we deserve onto his own body that we might have deliverance. So when we are wondering if God really cares for us, when you're wondering if God really cares about you, remember he cared about you all the way onto the cross. And on the cross, he thought of you. On the cross, he provided for you. You have a God of abundance. So let us be a people living with cups that overflow. Let us be a people of abundance and let us not be scared money. Amen. Thank you guys.